last week we talked about uh, the nature of spiritual leaders in the church. Now, why was Paul addressing the nature of spiritual leaders and pastors in the church? Well, I find myself at home in this situation that I think reminds me of why Paul's in this whole deal. I find myself rearranging the trash. Anytime I open up the trash bin, oh, we've got the trash bin, we've got the recycle bin, my kids are not too discerning about what goes where. If they've got waste, you know, they'll just put it in whichever bin has less stuff. So I find myself, you know, going back in and resorting what they've thrown away. This goes here, this goes in the recycle bin. Well, it seems like human beings have this temptation, this issue, where we're not too discerning about where to place glory. Uh, And Paul is going back through in the Corinthian church, and he's saying, let me sort this out for you. You know, human beings, it's fine if they receive encouragement. They're brothers and sisters. They're human beings just like all of us. So they can be encouraged. But glory, veneration, honor, idolizing, that is reserved for God alone. So he's been having to sort that out. And I'll say those first 15 verses that I talked about last week in chapter 3, in those, Paul did a thorough job of helping us understand that in the church, leaders should not be considered as sacred. They shouldn't be lifted up as celebrities. They are to be servants. That is what leaders are. That is what the culture of leadership should be around pastors and all others who are in leadership in the church. They should be seen as servants, not sacred. But as we go on into the final verses of chapter 3 here, we're going to see there is something that is sacred to God, and it is the church. And the church ought to be defended against the pride of the various personalities that get propped up. Let's read that together here, starting in verse 16. The verses will be on the screens, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul writes, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you thinks you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. Wow, what, what an amazing couple of statements here. That I mean, if we can grasp them, they're absolutely revolutionary for the way that we look at the world. And I'll tell you what, as I study a passage like this, I feel like a bottleneck. I, I feel like this funnel, the bottom of the funnel. You know, a lot of pastors, I think, can see themselves as the megaphone. They take God's truth and they're like, man, I'm going to expand upon it. I'm going to magnify it for all of you. I feel like, man, I sit with these passages. It's like all the things that God wants us to know and understand and wants to do in our lives, and it's got to come through little old me. i got to be able to convey this? No, thank God the Spirit is at work beyond the words that I can say. But when we're looking at this passage, we've got these three perspectives, these three realities that I think we need to take to heart that are going to ensure that we don't 
give men and women glory that they don't deserve, and by extension, divide the church. And the first perspective and reality that I think is taught to us that is going to keep us from that error, Paul says, is in verse 17. Those who divide up Christ's body by propping themselves up or by following mere men and women and create factions, they themselves are going to be diced up. If they work to destroy the church by dividing it up, following this person or that person, or propping themselves up, if they destroy the church, they themselves will be destroyed. And this is, guys, unambiguous, plain language here. It might catch you off guard to hear God's wrath spoken of in such bold and plain terms, but it's really appropriate given the context, given the subject that we're talking about. I sort of envision it like, you know, with myself, I, I, I would like to think I'm a kindly man. I would like to think of myself as quite patient and generous with people. Uh, if, if you even level some criticism my way, I feel like I'm very tolerant of that. But if you attack my wife, if you attack my children, you're going to see something different, right? <laughs> if you threaten my wife or my kids in any way, you're going to see me power up. I'll be honest with you, like, I'm taking my kids to school, and I'll park, and it's madness. You know, somebody's there driving up, trying to drop the kids off, trying to drive away to get to work on time. And so we're about to walk into the road to get to the street, across the street to the school, and zhip, someone's coming across. Boom. You know, that, it, I don't have to think about it. It doesn't even take me a second. I assert myself. And then I lock eyes and see it's someone in the church, and I chill out, right? <laughs> No, but, you know, you power up, and then the person, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, right, right, right? And I go, all right, at ease, you know? I have, I have to, like, calm down. And I think about God's character, his self-disclosed character that's repeated many times in the Old Testament. He says this to Moses. He speaks of himself, Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, he's speaking of his character, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. So you see here, God is inclined toward compassion. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. But you want to know what? He will also punish the guilty. He will also power up and judge when he needs to. And according to Paul, that happens particularly when people and personalities divide up his church. Why is God so against that? Well, you know, as I said last week, through the cross, God has joined us together as one new humanity in him. Through faith in Jesus and what he did, we receive God's spirit. And together, believers and followers of Jesus constitute by God's spirit his temple. Now, this is not a physical temple, as if we have some physical holy land, you see that in the Middle East, right? People are fighting over a physical piece of land that they consider to be sacred and holy. No, we are a spiritual temple where God dwells by his spirit. Remember, the Samaritan woman said to Jesus, you know, we Samaritans, we worship on this mountain. You Jews worship on that mountain. And Jesus said to her, mm, time is coming. And has now come when the true worshipers of our Father in heaven will worship in spirit and in truth. And so that's us as Christians. We worship God through the truth of Jesus by his spirit. 
And we constitute the people where he dwells, that which is sacred. So that's what makes us sacred. Everywhere we are on earth as God's people, the one united people filled with the Spirit, everywhere we are is a sacred space because God's Spirit is at work through us, which is why he is so indignant and angry and brings punishment when someone would divide us, when someone would come against us from within or without you know, it reminds me of 9-11, September 11th. If you were alive to experience that day and you saw the events transpire, you know, it was like we had been attacked in a way that we were losing something sacred to us as Americans. Because here, you know, terrorists have come into our largest city, our flagship city. They took out our largest buildings. You know, to us, that represented something sacred, and it brought out an indignation in us. I remember President Bush, he had his impromptu speech in the rubble of the World Trade Centers. And he's there speaking to first responders. He's on the megaphone and someone yells out, we can't hear you. And he says, well, I hear you. And the world hears you. And pretty soon those who knock down these buildings will hear all of us. And whatever you think about the next actions America took in the wars in the Middle East, you do know that that voice represented our united indignation against our enemies because something sacred to America had been destroyed. So imagine God's righteous indignation when human beings attack his temple by asserting themselves within it or by tearing it down or dividing it up. And that's what Paul was concerned with here in the Corinthian church. This behavior where by their own measure... Groups within the Corinthian church were rallying around a personality and saying, well, this is the only valid person to follow in. And the rest of these people are excluded, even though God had already included them. And let me be here, clear here. Uh, there are boundaries to this temple of God, right? Uh, not just everyone's involved in what God is doing through Christ. Like, there are defined boundaries around what is sin. We, we have to agree on that. You know, and, and I'm not saying we're not clear on that. In a couple of weeks, you're going to see in the book of 1 Corinthians, we're very clear scripturally around what is sin. You know, that's, that's part of what makes us Christian, that we're to repent from sin. That salvation comes through faith in Jesus' work upon the cross and not through works. You know, these are the distinctives that make us believers, that we believe in a resurrection and eternal life, Right? If you don't believe like in things like the authority of God's word, then why would you even assert yourself as a Christian in the first place? But guys, it's like this. It's like cake. There's lots of different cake. There's lots of different frosting. But if it's cake, it's cake in all its variety. And the same is true of Christians. If you're a Christian, meaning you hold to the core tenets of the faith, then you're a Christian and God has accepted you amidst all the variety. But here's the issue. Someone stands up in the bakery and says, but wait, there's only one kind of frosting for cake. This is the only kind of frosting there can possibly be, and if you don't have this sort of frosting, well, then we can't even call it cake anymore. You know, they'll assert that for Christianity. They'll say, oh, this is the only way. This is the only way to interpret the book of Revelation. If you don't interpret the book of Revelation this way, well, then I can't even consider you a Christian anymore. Well, this is the only way for you to understand how God works. 
You know, in terms of, oh, we got free will as human beings and God destines people to election. Well, how does God work that out? Well, let me explain exactly how that works out. And if you don't agree with the way I think that works out, well, then I don't even consider you a Christian anymore. Someone will say, this is the only way for a Christian to respond in the challenges of our culture today. And if someone isn't telling you what I'm telling you, they're false, not of the Lord, don't listen to them. Guys, that's the attitude God hates in the church, in this divine bakery. Because there's only one person who's going to separate the sheep from the goats, and it's Jesus. And if you go to Matthew chapter 25, what is the criteria Jesus uses to distinguish sheep from goats, those who are his followers and those who are not. Does he go, well, you know, let's hear your statement of theology and uh, let's see how exact you were in your understanding of everything in the scriptures. And okay, you got all the answers right. You're a sheep, you're a goat, right? Is it which creed did you follow? Which theologians are your favorite? Oh, those are my favorite too. Okay, you're a sheep, you're a goat, right? It, it, no, is it, is it all the different ways that we respond with the culture and the politics of our day? And Jesus is going, well, who did, who did you, let me see your voting record. Now, oh, clearly by your voting record, you are a sheep, and clearly by yours, you are a goat. Is that the criteria? No, what distinguished a sheep from a goat? It was whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. How did you treat the poor, the sick, the imprisoned, the lame, the hungry, the thirsty? Whoever loved like Christ is one of Christ's sheep, and whoever didn't isn't. Sadly, I think there's this human and fleshly temptation to throw all that out, this temptation to want to associate with the most self-confident, arrogant, brash, brazen, and pig-headed personalities because they convey to us a form of strength or assurance that we're looking for. When someone asserts, I know the way, and no one else does, and I know it with 100% certainty, and if you're in my camp, you're on the right side. If you agree with me, you'll be on the right side of history. And everyone else is wrong. There's just something in us that is drawn to that sort of narcissism. Even in the church. It was true thousands of years ago, and it was dividing the church, and it's still true today. That reveals to me that the church, even now, is still looking for a Lord over it, even though it already has the Lord. We're looking for someone to give us the answer key for all of our questions, for clarity around how to respond to a confusing culture and world around us, for someone to assert the strength we feel we need when we feel marginalized or small in our home or in our workplace or in the world around us. But the church doesn't need any other Lord than the Lord Jesus Christ. And God won't contend with that pride which divides the church. So that's the second reality we need to accept if we're to keep men and women in perspective and reserve glory only for God. Paul shows us yet again, God opposes, and you're going to see this over and over in the Bible, God opposes pride and vainglory. See, as I've been saying, there were those who thought they were very wise, and they were a notch above the other believers, and they were somehow endowed with greater abilities and insight than everyone else. Paul says in verse 18, stop deceiving yourselves. Stop believing your own lies. He says, if you think you're wise, you have to become a fool. It's like the second I start feeling a little bit of pride inflating me as an individual, 
That's the second I'm in trouble. Like when I get on the motorcycle and I start thinking, oh man, I really got this whole thing under control, this acceleration. That's the second I start going into a turn a little too fast. So when we start thinking, man, I'm really on to something. I really see this the correct and right and only true way. That's the second we reveal we don't know a dang thing. Because true spiritual knowledge is always accompanied with humility. True spiritual knowledge is always accompanied with humility. You see, everything we know about God comes when we stop claiming to know something for ourselves. That's what it says in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There's no way to know the proper way to be a spouse or a parent or a citizen in society or a follower of God or someone who's truly spiritual until you admit that you don't know anything and that you require the wisdom of God. The second that you begin relying on the wisdom of God, that's the starting line of actually learning something and gaining wisdom. And as you get into that and you start learning and maturing, you understand that the wisdom of God is all at once generous and gracious and humble because God is generous and gracious and he modeled humility for us. So we should never be part of the charade that I see in Christian culture today where we try to assert like we know everything. Guys, I, I see this as like the expectation of pastors. Like, oh man, our pastors, our spiritual leaders ought to have an answer for everything. And they better be the leaders of a community that train everyone else to act like they know everything. Have you guys sensed this at all? This message of like, man, I know everything. I know everything about the Bible. I've got every answer for everything that goes on in the Bible. And because I know everything about the Bible, that means I know everything about every discipline in the world. As a pastor, because I know everything about the Bible, I know everything about science. I know everything about medicine. I know everything about psychology. I know everything about economics. I know everything about politics. I've got an answer for you for everything from dinosaurs to UFOs because I know everything. Guys, I didn't go to Bible school to become someone who acts like they know everything about everything and then goes and trains a bunch of people to be arrogant and claim they know everything about everything. If we know everything about everything, then answer this question. Why is the next generation leaving the faith of their parents? Who's got the answer for that? And someone might assert that they have the answers, but maybe one of the reasons they're leaving is because we're acting like we know everything. It's like what Paul says later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2. I love this, guys. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. Those who think they know something, who've got the answer for everything, they actually don't know as they ought to be knowing. There's something wrong about the way they're going about it then. It's like if you got into my parenting and I said, man, I've got the principles for parenting. They are bulletproof principles. I just taught a class, pre-parental you know, preparation a couple weeks ago, and I'm up there speaking all this truth. What if it's all true? It's all great. But then you come to my house and you see I'm a deadbeat dad. I don't apply anything that I say. What is all of that knowledge good for if it isn't demonstrated in my life, if I'm knowing all of it, but I'm not being any of it. And there are those who are talking like they know everything about God, everything about the Bible, got answers for everything in society, and they can wax on it for days, but their hearts are just full of arrogance and self-interest. What good is any of it? 
They're not knowing anything as they ought to know. God always catches people who think they know something more than they do. Verse 19, he catches the wise in their craftiness. It's like my two-year-old son. He's, he's addicted to the iPad. Uh, you know, Steve Jobs knew something when he wouldn't give his own children the devices he was creating because these are very addictive devices. My son always ends up with my iPad. That's why it's in uh, tatters. I don't know if you can see all this. This is new. Spider cracks across the glass. I'm trying to avoid splinters as I preach right now. It's because my son is an expert at two years old of finding and acquiring the iPad for himself. And, and I have limits on it, which is basically you can never use it. And I place it on top of the fridge because he's this big and the fridge is up here. And the second I do that, I can see him crafting a solution for how he's going to get there. He begins scheming instantly. He's surveying all the furniture in the room for which one he can start with to the one that he can get to so that he can get up and, and reach the iPad at the top of the fridge. And I feel like God has that perspective on us in our craftiness. I mean, the second we start to act like we know more than we actually do and we start scheming to steal from him his glory, that is when he says, I'm going to get in your way. I wouldn't be surprised to hear that the great fall of so many celebrity leaders in the church. I talked about this last week. There's so many, you know, celebrity pastors, people with a giant stage, and you find out, oh, horrible moral failing, and it's repeated moral failing, and there's a terrible cover-up that doesn't actually cover it up. And, you know, that keeps happening over and over and over again in American Christian culture. I wouldn't be surprised if that undoing is actually a grace from God. A lot of people will say, oh my gosh, this is ruining our reputation with culture. And I'd say, no, when they fall, it's saving our reputation. Because what's ruining our reputation in culture is when we let men and women get into those places in the first place. And it's God's grace to remove people from those places so that we can see who they actually are, who we all actually are. I would only wish that everyone who would try to climb that ladder to heaven in their own self-seeking would fall as far as they did climb because then we would understand every single one of them is sinners saved by grace just the same as us, fools in need of God's wisdom just like all of us. So no more boasting about human leaders. That's what Paul says. Wouldn't it be nice if that was just it? If he just declared that in 1 Corinthians thousands of years ago, no more boasting about human leaders. And it was just like, done. Okay, we're not doing that anymore. Oh, it still needs to be said today. The same dynamics are still going on. But he says that because, of course, like I said, dividing over leaders destroys God's temple and is going to lead to destruction. Because the pride that comes with propping up these different people is opposed to to the humility that God is bringing about in the church. That's all reaching above our station when we're the ones sifting out sheep from goats and when we're claiming to know more than we actually do, we're reaching above what is our proper position as Christians. But ironically, the third reality we need to grapple with is that's not just reaching above our station, it's beneath us. Those behaviors are beneath us as Christians. And here we have a mystery, this assertion by Paul that all things are ours in verse 21. And he starts with the Christian leaders that the church is divided over. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, also named Peter. 
He goes, they're all yours. He's like, you're picking one of these over the others to follow, but you own them all. They're all your servants. They're all propping up this one work that God is doing that you are inheriting. So why are you settling when you do these factions for less than the whole picture? In fact, why are we even talking about people and their piddly little thoughts and preferences when the whole world is ours as believers? Paul says in verse 22, life and death and the present and the future all are yours you got to stop for a second. Realize what he's saying. Wait, what? Am I, did I leave a, an unclaimed lottery ticket somewhere? What is, he, what is he suggesting here? Well, think about it. We are in Christ, and Christ is of God, and God owns everything. So you know what God has prepared for every single one of us? If we're in him today, we're already the trust fund kids of eternity that are inheriting the kingdom of God. So why in the world will we settle for worldly, childish infighting amongst ourselves? It must be because we feel we have less than we actually do. It's like, what if I did this scenario? I put 100 bucks out and I closed my eyes. And I said, all right, this is the illustration. I'm going to close my eyes. I'm going to leave the 100 bucks there. And whoever needs it, just go ahead and jump up and take it. I'm going to close my eyes. If you've got a million dollars in the bank... I'm going to hope that you don't jump out of your seat to try to grab that hundred bucks because you've got an abundance. You've got more than you need. You don't need that. So you just kind of sit back and you're relaxed. If you can't put gas in your car, you're going to jump right out of your seat and you're going to grab that money. And all the clamoring that we see in the world comes from that sense of feeling that we don't have enough, from that sense of poverty. Oh, man, I need more money. Why do you need more money? It's because I don't have enough money. I need more approval in the workplace. I need more approval in the church. Why do you need more approval? It's because I don't have enough. I need more. I need some of that glory that's reserved for God because I need it for myself and I don't have it and we got to go get it. But all things are already ours. This mindset is revolutionary, guys, for your spiritual life. Think about it on the personal level. Why do you need to work so hard and sacrifice everything on the altar of one day I'm going to live in that beachfront home? So everything goes to like, I'm going to live on that beach. I'm going to have that beachfront home. I'm going to arrive. And then you're going to enjoy it for the half a second that constitutes the rest of your life. And then in Christ, you inherit something that is so much far greater in the kingdom of God. It's like, why did you settle for that? Why did you make your life about that when everything is already yours? Do you know what you have stored up for you? I mean, this is the mindset that drives us as a branches community. It changes the way that we work as a church because, you know, we get together and we're not about branches' little mission. Oh, man, we got to make a name for ourselves. Oh, we really got to carve out a little piece of property here in Huntington Beach so that we can make our name greater, so that I can have a bigger platform. Guys, all things are ours. When common ground grows, we grow. When Young Lives grows, we grow. Those are our ministry partners in the city. They're ours, and we're theirs. That's true for the churches. When First Christian Church on Main Street grows, we grow. 
When compass grows and mariners grows and beach point grows and sea breeze grows and shore life grows and all the other beachy themed churches that are in Christ grow, we grow. That's us. That's why we never believe our church spreadsheets are actually a solid indicator of where we're at because we can't track the resources of the kingdom of God that we're inheriting. This is the mindset that doesn't just change the way that we live and the way that we operate as a church. It changes the way that we relate to our culture as a whole. It should give us great poise and confidence. We Christians have a role to play in society. You'll never hear me say otherwise. We have to promote the good of God. Don't get me wrong. We should be actively engaged here locally for the state, for the country, for the world. Don't hear me wrong, but we should never be acting out of a place of anxiety and fear like we've got to enter into some arm wrestling match for the future of California or America because it's already God's. California is already God's. America is already God's. The world and the universe is already God's. All things are ours so we can engage with that faith and consequently... You know, as it pertains to this topic here, we should be so above thinking there's anything to be gained in propping up people or seeking a stage for ourselves. Who needs that when you've already got everything already stored up? I don't need that when we've got it all in Christ. So like I said here, guys, at the outset, I feel like the funnel, the bottleneck. I can hear and see what God is speaking through this, but I just feel like the tiny end of the funnel that's like, but do you see? And as I walk away, I want to leave you with these thoughts. And by God's grace, he'll make them more than thoughts. Number one, treat the church as a sacred people. That's what we see in 1 Corinthians 3. Whoever destroys it will be destroyed. Guys, it's fine to have conversations around our failures. It's fine to sit around and go, man, the church has made these mistakes. I think that's good. I think that's a part of humility. But when we assert ourselves into the role of Jesus and begin to exclude people, that he is included, that's when we can get into some really dangerous territory. And I think that there's an element like we think we can get away with speaking ill of our brothers and sisters, of holding them to all these different various standards, of thinking they should think the way we think because the master's away. So we think we can get away with it. It's sort of like online anonymity. You know, you see the way that people behave when they have a little anonymity, when they're just like a little username in a forum on the comments section. They say whatever they want because there's that distance between them and the audience. They can hide behind that anonymity. But I say try that before God. How many of us would assume to exclude whole swaths of the church because they don't align with us when we're standing before God? Are we going to plead that case before him? Here's all the people I don't think you should have included, God. Are we going to sit there and contend, oh, look at this issue with my brother. Look at this issue with my sister in the church. You see how unworthy of your grace they are? I mean, that's the way we'll talk about them. Would you say that before God? Would you plead that case? Do we forget that by the measure we judge, so will we be judged? That whoever destroys the church will themselves be destroyed? I don't think we'd say that before God. But don't think he doesn't hear it right now, the way that we're speaking. The church, God's people, is sacred, and we've got to treat it as such. I also take this from this passage. The true understanding is always accompanied with humility. 
If it's all God's thoughts and our understanding of God's thoughts is by God's power, then he gets all the credit. I covered that a few weeks ago. And as we begin to discern God's thoughts and humble ourselves and you know, have that fear of the Lord, knowing who he is, knowing who we are, and we begin to gain wisdom and understanding, all the content of that is also supposed to produce humility in us. So if we're knowing all this stuff about the Bible without being all the stuff that's in the Bible, it's, it's as simple of an issue as I find when I'm wiring up an outlet. If there's power at the source, but there's no power at the outlet, then somewhere along the line there's a disconnection in the wire. And if there's humility at the source, which is Jesus, and there's none at the end product of his leaders and ministers, because they need the finer things in life, because they won't associate with the lowly, because they think so highly of themselves, well, then the Spirit isn't in it. There's a disconnection somewhere along the line. And the same is true of us. True understanding, maturity, is always accompanied with humility. And finally, I walk away with this truth. That we're to all live out of the abundance of heaven. Guys, all that infighting about who's better than who and who knows more in the church, all the pride that would assert that we know more than everybody else, that's all beneath us. If we're living out of the abundance of heaven, we wouldn't have to make much of ourselves. If we knew what God has planned for us, we wouldn't need the approval of others if we know what God has in store for our experience we wouldn't despair the toil of barely getting by in OC, which I know some of you experience. We wouldn't have to despair in that toil if we knew how much is stored up for us in heaven. All things are ours. And I know that can feel very unreal. That can feel very future. Well, that doesn't help me with today. This is where I'm at right now. You know, I'm reminded when my son came up to me a couple weeks ago with tears in his eyes, and he said, Dad, the days of school are so long. Poor guy. Sweet guy. He goes, I go in there, I think it's eight hours. I think it's nine hours, and I'm watching the clock, and it's not moving, and the days are so long, he's tears. I say, son, it's going to go by real fast, and you're not even going to remember one bit of that experience. And here we are, and we've got all these troubles and trials and the trifles of life. And it's passing. And before we know it, we're going to be inheriting all that is ours. Anxiety over possessing something in the world is the clearest sign that we don't know what we really have in heaven. Anxiety over possessing something in this world is a clear sign we don't know what we really have in heaven. If the Lord would just be able to reveal that to us, that we'd have that revelation and that understanding and wisdom, we'd be so free. We'd be so free. Let's, let's ask for that freedom now by God's power. Would you join me in prayer this morning? And Heavenly Father, I just, I thank you. I thank you that you are glorious and good and gracious. That you would fill people like us, sinners though we are, with your Holy Spirit. And that you would renew us and redeem us. And that you'd even call us your sacred temple that you dwell within. Lord, would we understand the sacredness of what you've done? And would we stop short of excluding those that you have included? Lord, there are bounds to this temple. 
there is what it means to be in you, Jesus, and you're very clear about that in your scriptures, but will we not go beyond what is written and start assigning who's a sheep and who's a goat, Lord? It's only by your love and grace that we could even be considered sheep ourselves, so help us to remain humble. God, true understanding is always accompanied with humility. There is no love in pride. There can be none of your love in pride. There's only self-seeking. But God, with humility, you open us to your love. And that's where maturity comes, and that's where true understanding comes. So Lord, would we not just act like we know everything? Would we live what we can know? Which is the life that you intend for us, Jesus, in all humility. And would we be empowered, too, by what you've done, God, that clamoring for approval and attention and glory and possessions, God, that is beneath us because all things are already ours because we're in you, Christ, and you're in our Father in heaven. Lord, fill us with that satisfaction. Make that real to us. That we wouldn't live out of that sense of poverty. Oh, I don't have enough. I don't have enough attention from the people around me. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough possessions. I don't have enough claim. God, all things are ours. Oh, the things you have prepared for those who love you. Help us to understand that in just a moment, God, this moment that's passing, we're going to be experiencing the fullness of your kingdom, something that's greater than anything the world promises. So right now, Lord, if there's anything that we're reaching for in anxiety, seeking to possess in this world, thinking, oh, that's my answer. I need that. God, would you show us that that's the clearest evidence that we aren't understanding what we already have in you. Maybe it is someone clamoring for attention, approval, clamoring for affection, possessions, or money. Clamoring for that feeling of, oh, I'm right, and everyone else is wrong. Lord, that's the clearest sign. We're not trusting in what we have to come. Help us understand that. So, Lord, we're not clamoring to take, but we have the space to now give because we know what we have. We have everything in you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.